Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 12 in our 1 Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, The Responsibilities of a Gospel Minister, where we'll discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 15 through 27. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, what we're going to see in these verses, they're very memorable. We're going to see Paul's commitment to do whatever he can to take the gospel to various categories of people, and specifically the theme of the self-denial, um, the strictures he puts himself under so as to be able to share the gospel with as many people as possible. Uh, it's in a larger section on meat sacrifice to idols uh, in three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, in which we have a kind of an overriding principle, love limits liberty. We're going to see the limits very strongly in this chapter. We're going to see the limits Paul put himself under. He didn't do what was convenient for himself. He didn't do what was easy. And specifically, he was very strict with himself and his own desires, his own body and its drives, so that he wouldn't be disqualified from gospel ministry. So we're going to see him making assertions like, I will be whatever I can be to anybody in any amoral thing. I will do anything I can in the amoral categories, whether with meat or not meat or whatever, with eating, with clothes, whatever I have to do to win people. I'm not going to violate moral laws, but I'll do amoral things, whatever I can. I'm not in it for myself. But beyond that, I don't trust myself and I watch over myself with great strictness. So we're going to talk about what it takes to be that kind of a gospel minister. Well, let me go ahead and read verses 15 through 27 in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Andy, Paul returns to his surrender of his rights of support in verse 15. What reason does he give for surrendering this right? And why, if he surrendered this right, does he argue so vigorously for the right of support? All right. So the big picture here, big, big picture, as I mentioned in the intro, was um, the, the topic of meat sacrifice to idols and the basic doctrinal insight that an idol is nothing. It's a chunk of wood or metal or stone. And then meat laid in front of a chunk of wood or metal, metal or stone by a human being then walks away. The meat is just meat. And a believer in Christ can come along, pick it up, cook it, and eat it without any problem at all to their, to their soul. That is true. The problem is that knowledge is not enough. In a network of relationships, we have to be careful who's watching and what's going on in their hearts while they observe. They might draw the wrong conclusions. And if I'm going to damage anybody who's watching, either a non-Christian or a Christian alike, I'll refrain from eating. So that's the basic idea. Love limits liberty. Yeah, you have the freedom to eat. But what effect is it going to have on those watching? And if somebody's conscience is bothered by what I do, that's a, that's a factor. I want to look in on that. Then he uses himself in chapter nine as an example of love limits liberty. And he speaks, he changes the subject somewhat to, somewhat to the rights of an apostle to be supported financially. Let's take that as an example. So I have the freedom to take along a believing wife. I have the freedom to be supported financially to have a life. But I've chosen to limit my own liberty and not demand those things. I did it so that I could really be free from any concerns or accusations that I was in it for the money, that I was in it for greed and all that. It's clearly not the case. I was working hard with my own hands, supporting others. I was serving as a tent maker there. You saw it, you watched it, etc. However, I want you to know that it is right for those who preach the gospel to make their living from the gospel. So as a lasting principle, I'm not advocating. It's basically do as I say, not as I do here. But I had my own reasons for doing what I did. I limited my own liberty, and that's why he's talking about it here. He said, look, I didn't use any of those rights, and, and I have a boast I could make. I can look you in the face, O Corinthians, and say, you didn't give me a penny for preaching the gospel to you. I was not in it for the money. But in a larger sense, he's he's basically saying, that's an example of limiting your liberty. And he's also saying, however, other gospel ministers should have the right of support. What boast is Paul referring to here in this section? You didn't support me. Uh, I worked hard with my own hands. I made myself an example. He's gonna say it in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders. He's gonna say, say uh, you yourselves know how I lived, how hard I worked, how with my own hands I supported my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything that I did, I put on display the statement Jesus made, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's my boast. Mm. You didn't support me financially. I went above and beyond mm. the call of a gospel ministry here. That's his boast. What does Paul mean then by saying, for necessity is laid upon me? Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And how does this relate to the prophet Jeremiah? All right, so the boasting thing, Paul just plays at it, all right? He's he's gonna do it later uh, where he boasts in, in 2 Corinthians about his sufferings, and he says, I have worked harder than anybody. Yeah, you know, he, he uses these this kind of statement, but he's like, look, I can't do it for long. It's just not very Christian to talk like this. But he does this kind of boasting thing a lot. And he says, look, when I, when it, when I bring it back to the cross though, and the empty tomb, when I bring it back to Almighty God, I can't boast. There can be no boasting. And the fact of the matter is, no matter what I say to you, I was compelled by the Spirit to preach the gospel. 
I had no choice but to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I am forced or compelled by the Spirit. You know, it reminds me of what it says in in Ezekiel 36. He says, I'm going to take out the heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my Spirit in you and move you Mm. to follow my commands and be careful to keep my laws. Mm. Move you? What is that? That's a compulsion. That's the Holy Spirit basically taking over, not violating our personalities like a demon does in a demon-possessed person, but working so effectively in you that you see the wisdom of preaching the gospel. Now, concerning Jeremiah, that's a great, great question. And I think it comes to a verse that we, we were just talking about. Why don't you read it from Jeremiah 20? So in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9 says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. That's almost exactly what Paul's saying. Woe to me. I'm compelled to preach the gospel. I can't say no. So that's the compulsion of the Spirit, as he says in the book of Acts. And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. So that's a very good parallel. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Now, based on what we've just been discussing, in what way is Paul both voluntarily and involuntarily preaching the gospel like we see here in verses 16 and 17? He wants to do it. He wants to do it, but he's also under compulsion. I I think it's actually not much different than Jesus drinking the cup in Gethsemane. I mean, he wants to do it, but at the same time, there's a compulsion on him from the prophecies. Mm. He has no choice. And so there's a sense of that. I am I'm in this position where there is, I really don't have a choice, but don't misunderstand me. I really do want to preach the gospel. I actually have the delight in preaching the gospel. So I am preaching voluntarily. Now, if I preach of my own free will, if I preach voluntarily and cheerfully, I get a reward. So our rewards are tied not just to what we do, but how we do it. Mm. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but how have not love. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. So our rewards are tied to our demeanor and our reasons and our attitude, not just to what we do. Keep in mind also, God can put a compulsion on somebody and speak through them, but they don't get any reward at all. I think about, uh, for example, Caiaphas, who said it would be more beneficial for one man to die and the whole nation not perish. And John tells us he didn't say this of himself, but as high priest that year, he prophesied concerning Christ that he would die for the nation. Hmm. But he didn't get any reward. Yeah, <laughs> His no, motive no. was not did good. did him no good. It did him no good. So what, he's, what Paul's saying here is like, look, I have no choice. I'm under compulsion. But if I preach voluntarily, if I want to do it, God loves a cheerful giver. If I do that, then I'm getting a reward. If I am, if I don't want to do it, then I'm just discharging the duty. Could be that in his humanness, in his Romans 7 human sinfulness, there are probably some days he did the right thing but didn't really want to do it. Mm. Maybe for those days he didn't get a reward. We don't get 100% rewarded for everything because mm. sometimes we're off that day. We don't minister very well, etc. Now, Paul goes on in verse 18 to explicitly discuss rewards, uh, talk about them a little more. What does Paul say is his reward for preaching the gospel? And he says, what is my reward? It's that in preaching the gospel, I can offer it free of charge and, and I'm not using my rights. So what he's doing is he's saying, look, there are, there are kind of normal gospel ministers, but I'm not that person. I'm at a higher level. 
I am the apostle to the Gentiles, and it was incumbent on me to go above and beyond the normal call of duty. And so my reward is the extreme level of stricture I put on myself puts me in a position to be more rewarded. I think what we find out about the doctrine of rewards is that they're in proportion to sacrifice. The greater the sacrifice, then the higher the reward. And, and, and only God can properly measure it. Let's imagine somebody has a very, very hard time speaking. They have a stutter. They don't speak well. And as a result, they're very insecure. And it's extremely difficult for them to get up in front of a crowd. And they get up and they give their testimony and mm. they get baptized, right? They're going to get a greater reward than the preacher who's been there a thousand times literally before and preaches yet another sermon. <laughs> and it's not that big a deal for him. Of the two, who gave a bigger sacrifice that day? And so it really does zero in on on the level of sacrifice and commitment, Paul was willing to forego his apostolic rights in order to preach the gospel free of charge and be clear from any questions about his motives. What do verses 19 through 23, this next section that we're going to look at, teach us about Paul's level of self-sacrifice to spread the gospel? Yeah, it's really quite remarkable. And this is one of the most important sections in the entire Bible on, on miss, missional strategy, on, on what we try to do in a culture. In a culture, you're going to try to become all things to all people so that by all possible means, we might save some. That's what Paul says. What does that mean? When you, For us, we were missionaries in Japan. We will try to fit into Japanese culture, eat Japanese food. Uh, we don't necessarily had, have to wear Japanese clothing because they're so used to Westerners at that point. Most of them wear Western-style clothing. But we tried to immerse ourselves in the amoral amoral aspects of their culture. And I have to say amoral because Shintoism is a religion, a national religion, and there are certain rituals they would do. We could never participate in those things. But when it comes to amoral things like food, clothing, habits, um, holidays, uh, rituals, rites, taking your shoes off when you entered the house every time. Mm. By the way, I remember seeing a movie about a baseball player in Japan and he went over there with cowboy boots that were mid-calf and he had to tug and tug and tug <laughs> to get them off. And there was this other baseball player who had been there for a couple of years. He looked at him, shook his head and laughed, said, that's going to change. Yeah, by the end of the movie, he's wearing slides, yep. you know, slipping them on and yep. off because every time you go in a Japanese home, you're mm. going to take off your shoes. It's just part of the culture. What Paul's saying in this whole section here is whatever it takes to win people, I'll do it. Even if I don't like it. Even if I have to eat things I don't like, you can imagine as a Jew, the, the non-kosher foods like pork might have even been nauseating to him. I mean, disgusting to him. And, and he would recoil from it like Peter did when he was told to get up and kill and eat these reptiles and all that in that vision he had in Acts chapter 10. But Paul says, I'll eat it if I can win some people to Christ. Hmm. And, and why would he do that? He's currying favor. You know, he's, he's building relationships. He's eating what's served to him without any questions because the hostess wants to make him happy and she's serving food that that's what they eat. And so Paul says, whatever it takes, I'm gonna do it. So overall, these verses, and we're gonna walk through them, I know in detail, but these verses give us a mentality that whatever I can do, however I am inconvenienced doesn't matter as long as I can, might, might be able to win some people to Christ. Now, you've alluded to this uh, even in the description of this overall section, but how, how did Paul make himself a slave and become 
like a Jew to win Jews and like a Gentile to win Gentiles. Well, here's the thing. Martin Luther wrote um, The Freedom of the Christian Man. He said, a Christian man is free, slave to no one. And a Christian man is slave to everyone, uh, you know, not free in that case. And, you know, I don't remember the exact terminology, but we are both completely free horizontally from other people and then completely enslaved. Hmm. So how is he? How is Luther free? Well, he stood before them and, and basically uh, the Diet of Worms proclaimed the gospel of justification by faith alone saying, here I stand, I can do no other. I can't go against conscience. None of you can change my mind unless you can prove it from scripture and you can't. So fundamentally, I'm free from your opinion. If you kill me, you kill me. But the truth is the truth. So he, at that moment, was a free man. Hmm. He was not afraid of death. He was not afraid of anyone's opinion. He was free from everyone and subject to none. But when it came to ministering the gospel, then Luther and all, any faithful missionary evangelist or, or the Apostle Paul here makes himself a voluntary slave to everyone in order to win them. And again, we need to be clear about this. What does it mean? He's under certain boundaries. He's bounded by the customs of the people, their dietary customs, their their um, culture, their their holidays and and rituals and all that, as much as long as they don't violate the law of God, and he says that later. He says, "Though I am not under the law," but later he says, "Though I am not free from God's law." So if their custom is to, you know, one of the things we do is to make our, our guests home is we offer our wives uh, to have carnal knowledge with our wives. Like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Could that be immoral? All right. So that's a, I've never heard of that ever, but you could, you could imagine somebody offering a wicked thing, an evil thing, like, you know, smoking an opium pipe or something like that. It's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. But if you're going to say I'm offering you a pork tortilla, you know, and I'm a, I'm a converted Jew, I'll eat the pork tortilla. Hmm. There's nothing immoral. It's not my taste. <laughs> and so I feel a little bit in myself like a slave. Mm. I'm bounded in by this. I'm going to eat whatever you serve. Mm. You know, most of us are just slaves to our preferences. We're like, nah, I don't like it. I'm not eating it. And it's like, well, you're selfish. You're being selfish. So this passage tells us, don't be selfish. Yeah. Be willing to get up out of yourself and do things to win people. Such a great quote from Luther. And it really does help situate this section in the broader passage as you have so helpfully done as we've walked through these chapters to say that Love is limiting our liberty. We don't get yeah. to do whatever we want. And we really do have to take stock of the situation and how we can best honor the Lord yeah. and also have an avenue to share the gospel. Yeah. Honestly, if it doesn't, if love doesn't limit liberty, you're selfish. You're a selfish person. That's most people are. Most people live for themselves and for their own tastes. And they're blunt and they're rude and they they don't win connections. I think fundamentally it goes to one of the most interesting parables that Jesus ever told, the parable of the unrighteous steward. And this is a parable of of a guy who was in charge of a master's stuff and he comes to find out the master does that this guy's been dishonest and he's going to lose his job but he doesn't lose it right away which is the key to the whole parable and so he doesn't lose his job right away and then he starts calling in some of his uh, master's de uh, debtors and starts cutting their debts in half he's currying favor and it's an odd parable but basically what jesus is teaching is the things you have control over, you have them temporarily. Use them to make friends for yourself. That's what he says. Use unrighteous mammon to make friends for yourself. Paul's doing the same thing here. I'm going to use my dietary habits to make connections with people, to hmm. make friends. The alternative is to be selfish and you won't be able to win as many people to Christ. And ultimately, that is Paul's aim, right? He says in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Amen. 
What point does Paul make with this analogy of running the race in order to obtain or win a prize? All right, so this whole section is very, very important on the issue of self-control. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Another corollary or connection might be self-denial. And what does it mean? I'm saying no to myself. I'm saying no to my drives. Now here, again, we're in the overall topic of meat sacrifice to idols. And what if I really like meat or really don't like meat? Doesn't matter what you like and don't like when it comes to meat. What matters is the mission. The mission's bigger than your personal tastes. But here he seems to go beyond any of those things as well. I think here when he talks about controlling his drives, we get into the issue of the flesh and the body of sin and its drives. Mm. And basically the flesh, as we understand, sometimes called the sin nature, but the flesh that we are having to watch over so diligently takes normal desires, biological desires, so for food, for drink, for sex, for for love, for affirmation, and pushes them beyond boundaries. That's That pressure is going to be in us while we live in these mortal bodies. It's always going to be pushing us to go beyond boundaries that God has set up. Paul's saying no to his drives. He's saying no to his fleshly desires. He's saying no to his body. He's going to discipline his body severely and strongly so that he's not dominated by his bodily passions. Now, you look at the culture we live in here in America. Mm-hmm. People don't say no to themselves. They do whatever feels good, whatever they want to do. If they want to eat, they're going to eat. If they want to eat a lot, they're going to eat a lot. If they want to sleep with that girl that they meet at the party, they're going to do it. It's a hookup culture. They're going to do that. They're going to follow follow their drives and desires like they're animals. We Christians are called to a higher standard. And this is probably one of the strongest articulations in the Bible of the strictness it takes for us to live holy lives. If you're going to live a holy life, you have to say no to those fleshly drives and desires. You have to be careful what you look at on on the internet. You can't go to any site you want. You can't do whatever you want. You've got to say no to yourself. And Paul is the quintessential example of the holy man of God. You want to be a minister of the gospel, you've got to say no to your fleshly drives and desires. Now, he couches it in an athletic image. And that's important because sports is very important in our culture. In this case, it's a distance runner. You want to win the prize as a distance runner. You have to, as he says in 2 Timothy, compete according to the rules. Hmm. So the rules of the race, yes, but also the rules of training. You can't show up the day of the race not having done anything and hope that you're going to do well. You're not. You're a runner. So what do you? <laughs> what kind of preparation? Well, Here is yeah. you need to understand. This guy runs fifty mile races, well, you know, not, longer. Not fifty miles. Okay, thirty six, <laughs> fifty kilometers. All right, whatever, there we yeah. go. All right. So what do you do to prepare? You run a lot. You know, you have to put in work ahead of time. Lots of volume. Lots of preparation. There are certain things that I probably should do better, like nutrition and Mm -hmm. things like that. But it's certainly a lot of prior preparation in order Mm -hmm. to actually compete well and run in the race. Right. And so in uh, two journeys, we talk about two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of gospel advance. They come together in this chapter. But here it's really holiness. And uh, he's talking Mm -hmm. about saying no to his drives and desires so that he can preach the gospel. And so here's the thing. Those two journeys are interconnected. You can't say, look, I'm not going to look after the internal journey of holiness. I, I want to preach the gospel. You know what's going to happen? You'll mm-hmm. get disqualified. Satan will hunt you down. Satan will take you out. You won't be preaching the gospel five years from now. Paul knew that. He said, look, I don't want to get disqualified. 
I don't want to get get the big red X put on me. I don't want to get set aside. Mm -hmm. And so in order for me to not be disqualified from preaching the gospel, I have to go into strict training and watch myself very closely and carefully. And so it is with me as a pastor. I have to be very, very careful what I do, um, you know, in terms of sexual purity, what I do in relationships with people. It's not just a matter of purity uh, in sex. It's also a matter of purity in relationships that I not be a bitter, angry, unforgiving person who, who, you know, has broken relationships left and right. Pastors leave the ministry because of that. There's some things we have to do. Mm. Now, the image here is athletic. If I want to still be running this race years from now, I got to be in strict training. I got to watch the drives of my body. I got to not go in for bitter vindictiveness or sexual immorality or, mm. you know, eating and drinking problems. I need to keep my body under control. And my body, in this case, seems to be an enemy. I have to keep it under control. The one translation says, I beat my body and make it my slave. It's a very harsh image. Uh, your translation says strict training or something like that. What does it say? I discipline my body and keep it under control. Keep it under. So it's like it's pressing. It's like a like a team of horses like Ben-Hur. He's got four, I think it was four horses side by side and they're strong and they're pulling. It's like, I got to keep them under mm. rein. So that's the idea here. Yeah, Andy, when he uses this image of a runner, I think of, Olympians and you hear stories of them having as a kid the poster of a favorite runner up on their wall and it really it's it's that idea of having the goal or the end always in front of them so they grew up running track in high school and then they ran in college and then they competed on the world stage and finally they won but all along the way they had in mind the end what's the eternal crown that Paul is talking about because it seems like he has his end goal always before him. Well, he speaks of the Philippians as his crown. He speaks of the Thessalonians as his crown. So people are the crown, but crowns also are given to individuals as the 24 elders cast their crowns before the Lord. And so it's an emblem of honor given to a servant of Christ for certain services rendered in this world. And so he's pursuing that crown. He wants to get that victor's wreath. Now, these athletes, he says, in the Isthmian Games, I think it was, they're competing for uh, an olive olive wreath that's put on their head. Hmm. Yeah, but a week and a half later, it's all wilted and brown. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's gone, you know, and it's it's pretty mm. pretty sad, but we're getting an eternal crown. And so forever and ever and ever, the crown will shine. Mm. And that's because the Lord will remember it forever and never cease honoring the servants. He said, that's a crown worth going for. Now, in this case, it's evangelistic. People who are one to faith in Christ are our crown. But even if you just serve someone, it's like a jewel in the crown or something like that. Anything that you do by faith for the glory of God, if it's self-denying, sacrificial, costly to you, you do it cheerfully and out of love and you do it according to the word of God, it's rewardable. And that's why Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven. So there is a crown that we're pursuing and we we hope to have it. Now, Paul says, uh, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Now there is laid in store for me a crown which the Lord will award to all who have longed for his appearing. And so there is this this image of a crown yet to come. Mm. Now, Andy, there also I feel like could be two pitfalls on either side of this topic where we could take this too far or we could disregard it. How do we protect against both of those? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think there is a sad history of extreme asceticism. Uh, Ignatius of Loyola is the worst. This is a guy that had a a belt of nails, sharp nails, turned inward, wrapped around his body all the time. 
So he's like like little trickles of blood going down all the time. And that's just a, a, a very bad misunderstanding of mortification. Um, you know, that's not how we mortify sin. We mortify it spiritually, et cetera. So extreme asceticism, fastings, things like that. George Whitfield was into this before he was converted. So was Martin Luther, extreme fastings. Mm. You look at the earlier woodcuts of Martin Luther when he was, you know, at the Diet of Worms, he looks like a living skeleton. I mean, this is a guy through extreme fastings was trying to earn his way to heaven. So there is an extreme strictness that I think is dishonoring to God. We need to take good care of our bodies, make sure we get enough nutrition, enough sleep, things like that. Self-denial from time to time, fine. Fasting, okay. Maybe spend a night in prayer like Jesus did one time. But if you're never sleeping, sooner or later, it's going to catch up with you. So that's the one extreme. The other extreme is there's no discipline at all. You just give in to your fleshly drives and desires and just kind of live almost seems like a pagan life. So somewhere in between those two extremes is a healthy self-discipline that produces good fruit. Andy, as we reach the final verse, verse 27, what does it mean to be disqualified for the prize? And what final thoughts do you have on this passage we've looked at today? Well, it's a very scary word. And my mind immediately goes to specific people that I've known that are no longer in the in vocational ministry because of immorality, frequently sexual, but not always. Sometimes uh, they uh, it was a power control thing where they were tyrannical in their leadership style. And so they, were, they lost their position, the ministry position or... Maybe occasionally financial malfeasance, you know, some people embezzle. And so they just, you know, they were essentially idolaters at that point, And now they're not in the ministry. Um, but often it's sexual, you know, there's a, an affair or something that happens and, you know, uh, some sexual impropriety. So it's scary. And, and then becomes public knowledge and um, a person's not in the ministry anymore. And so I think for me, it's there's a reasonable fear of sin. This, this, uh, lest I be disqualified for the prize is a reasonable fear of a bad outcome. And so I think there's a healthy fear of sin, a healthy fear of Satan. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's reasonable for us to consider. You know, I sometimes think, what would it be like to have to get up in front of First Baptist Church on a Sunday morning and resign my position because of some disqualifying sin? And I actually have a brother that almost always prays out loud in my hearing that I would not be disqualified from the ministry, which is, scary, but I say, keep doing it. <laughs> hmm. So big picture though, with this chapter, the fundamental thing is we should be willing to deny ourselves and make life difficult for ourselves so that we can win others to the gospel. That's the takeaway here. Well, this has been episode 12 in our First Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 13 entitled Severe Warnings from Israel's History, where we'll discuss First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.